Have you ever looked at the sky on a clear, sunny day and seen from afar some dark, ominous clouds starting to form and roll in? You think, oh no, what's going to happen? And you pull out your phone and you look at the weather app and you see this giant green and red monster headed straight for you. And you know you're about to get soaked. You know you're about to get slammed with this huge storm and lightning and rain is going to be going crazy. But in that moment, when the skies are blue and you look off in the distance and you see the clouds start to gather and you know that the storm is approaching, that's kind of what's happening in the story of the life and ministry of Jesus As we get to this point in the Gospel of John, we are in John chapter 7 today. We're going to begin it, John chapter 7. And Jesus' life, we know, and his public ministry is moving toward betrayal and arrest and execution in Jerusalem. And we are coming to the point where we start to see the clouds gathering. To this point in the Gospel of John, Jesus has enjoyed a relatively prestigious ministry. Wherever he goes, people seem to flock to him and and, and get blessed by his power and his words, and he's healing people and feeding thousands miraculously. And so there's this general sense of kind of like buzz and energy surrounding his ministry. We started to see last week that that's fading at least in the area of Galilee to the north, the northern part of of Israel and Palestine, um, because Jesus starts saying stuff that they can't stomach. It's just too hard for them, and they start to turn away. But he's going to enter Jerusalem, or at least the the Judea area in our passage today, and things are getting worse for Jesus in terms of public attitudes about him, people's opinions about who he is, and Uh, what his ministry represents, and we start to see the gathering clouds that will become a full-blown storm of betrayal and arrest and hypocrisy and wickedness that lead to uh, Jesus' wrongful execution, humanly speaking. It was part of God's plan, obviously, but from a human perspective, Jesus has done no wrong, and so we know that there is great wickedness and sin surrounding his crucifixion. So the clouds begin to gather. At the beginning of John chapter 7, we're going to see Jesus making a shift in his ministry and actually traveling from Galilee to uh, Jerusalem. Now, it says, the first words there in in verse 1 of chapter 7 are, after this. It says, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. And it it appears that about six months of time is represented by that one little sentence. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. So we have about six months of his ministry that John does not record for us because he tells us in verse 2, now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. And he's about to go into Jerusalem for the feast of booths. All you need to know about the feast of booths for today Next week, we'll actually talk about it in some greater detail because the, the, the statements that Jesus is going to make about himself really only make sense against the backdrop of uh, the Feast of Tabernacles and a kind of a water ceremony 
that happens at, on the last day of that, uh, of that feast. But all you really need to know about it today is that it's tied to the seasons and the agriculture of the land so that the Feast of Tabernacles takes place at the beginning of fall, in about September. So it represents the, the time of year when, when farmers are moving toward harvesting their crops. And in fact, it was called the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles because during this season, farmers would actually set up temporary shelters in the fields to protect their crops. They would gather the crops and then put them in these little tents or tabernacles uh, out in the fields in order to protect what they had harvested. And so it came to be known as the Feast of Tabernacles or, or booths for that reason. So you need to know that it's at the beginning of fall and you need to know that there is uh, an expectation within Jewish religious law uh, for a Jewish male to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for uh, this feast. And so Jesus is going to do just that. He's going to go up to Jerusalem. And this will, in fact, be his last trip, if you will, uh, into the Judean area, because he's going to go south from Galilee down into the region of Judea, where Jerusalem is located. Uh, And he's going into Jerusalem today, and then he'll spend the next uh, six months or so uh, in and about the region of Judea. Uh, And it will be at the Passover time, which is in the spring, so about six months from the Festival of Tabernacles, that will encompass the events of his uh, crucifixion and resurrection. And so we are coming to the last six months or so of Jesus' earthly ministry leading up to his crucifixion. And John is going to really zoom in to the the ministry and the teachings of Jesus during that period of time. So we've covered a lot of, really about two and a half years of Jesus' ministry in the first seven chapters. And really the next, uh, the the rest of the book, say, what are 15 or so chapters that it has to go, all take place within about a six-month period of time in Judea. So he's going to begin getting laser-focused and zooming in on the events of this period of time. So let's read the first 13 verses together, and then we'll, and this kind of sets up uh, Jesus' time in Jerusalem. So John chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet, for fear of the Jews, 
no one spoke openly of him. So this sets up his uh, entrance into Jerusalem uh, and the, the, the speech, so to speak, that he's going to make uh, in just a few verses. Interestingly, we see from the very beginning of this chapter that the attitudes toward Jesus among the religious leaders in Jerusalem has firmed and is completely antagonistic to him now. It tells us in verse 1, he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So during that six-month period that is covered by that phrase, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee, during that six-month period, the Jews in Jerusalem want to kill Jesus. They have decided he's got to go. And we're going to see that as we go through this chapter, that that really is very closely linked to the controversy in John chapter 5. You might remember Jesus healed a paralyzed man on the Sabbath day. And that became a huge controversy uh, among the, the religious leaders in Jerusalem, saying that you have violated Sabbath law by doing this work on the Sabbath. And Jesus' defense of himself doing that on the Sabbath was, I'm God. I can do what I want. God is working on the Sabbath, and so am I, because I do what the Father tells me to do, and I'm doing his work. And so that did not do anything to assuage the fears and suspicions of the religious leaders, and they have decided he must go. So the Jews' antagonism has heightened, and again, we see, one of, we see some of these clouds starting to gather. All right, so in Jerusalem, there are people that are seeking his life. Here's another thing I find fascinating about these verses. Jesus' brothers don't believe in him. Does that strike you as interesting or strange? So Jesus, of course, was the first child of Mary, and his father was God. So we know that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary in a miraculous way. But it does appear that Joseph and Mary went on to have biological children of their own. So we might call these half-brothers because they share uh, a mother uh, but not a father. But Jesus has several brothers. James is one of them. Jude or Judas, Jude is kind of a short name, is another of them. And so he has several brothers that get mentioned in a few places. We saw them briefly back in chapter 2. Um, it just mentioned that Jesus and his brothers went uh, to Capernaum for a wedding. So here, his brothers are going to encourage him or, or char- challenge him to go to Jerusalem for this festival and to just publicly display himself with power and miracles and might. Nobody, it says, nobody uh, works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. So just go into Jerusalem and just make yourself known with power and with miracles. So it seems that his brothers recognize that Jesus can do amazing things. But then we get this commentary from John in verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him, which tells us right there that there's a difference between recognizing that Jesus has power and is unique in some way and placing your faith in him. I think the analogy of an airplane makes sense here because I can look in the sky and see an airplane and say, oh yes, I believe in airplanes. I believe that air travel will get you safely from place to place. But until I have placed my body in the seat of an airplane and entrusted my life and safety to a pilot who's going to fly that plane and get me from point A to point B, I have not really believed in air travel. 
I've not really believed in traveling by plane until I have actually committed my life to uh, the care of the one flying that airplane. And I think faith in Jesus is the same way. It's not enough to just recognize in your mind, yeah, Jesus is different. Yeah, Jesus is powerful. Jesus has some interesting things to say or to do. It's not enough to stop there. We have to actually place our lives by faith into the person and work of Jesus, recognizing that our only hope of a standing with God and an eternal life and a future comes through faith in Jesus Christ. So his brothers have not done that at this point. Now we know that they come to do that because James will become one of the chief leaders of the church in Jerusalem after Jesus has raised from the dead and ascended back to heaven. And Jude, in fact, writes one of the letters that is in the New Testament, the book just before Revelation. It's a one-chapter, one-page little book, but Jesus' brother Jude wrote it. So we, we do know that at some time, they do come to faith uh, and recognize who Jesus really is. But I find it fascinating that they grew up with Jesus in the same house, but they don't recognize who he is. They recognize, yeah, he's powerful. He can do miracles, but they don't know who he really is, which I think speaks at least to the true ordinary humanity of Jesus as he was growing up. Right? The Bible tells us that he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So I don't think he grew up doing crazy stuff and drawing attention to himself. I think he grew up in a gentle, peaceful, normal kind of a way, which is why his neighbors in uh, Capernaum could say, wait, isn't this, isn't this Joseph's kid? Like, we know him, you know? Uh, because apparently his life up to this point, up be, until he began his public ministry, is a pretty normal-looking human life. And I find that remarkable. So we have one form of unbelief here on the part of his brothers. They see that he can do powerful things, but they don't uh, believe in him in the sense of placing faith into him for their life and hope and future. So Jesus' answer to his brothers when they say, just go to Jerusalem and do crazy stuff and make yourself known, his answer to them in verse 6 is, my time has not yet come. You might remember a very similar response to Jesus' mother, Mary, back in John chapter 2. The family was at a wedding in Cana, and the wine ran out. And Jesus' mother, Mary, comes to Jesus and says, they have no more wine. Assuming, you've got to do something about this. Can you make something happen? And Jesus' response was, woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. So I find it interesting that his family members press him to do something, and his response is, not yet. This is not my time. What time is he talking about? What do you mean my time has not yet come? It's the time of the Festival of Booths. It's the time to go to Jerusalem. Why not? And what he means is the moment of his death, the moment to set his face to the cross and to begin marching toward uh, the crucifixion that is awaiting him. And so we find, even back in verse 1, it says he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. I don't, think he's a, I don't think it's for fear. I don't think it's because I'm not ready to go do that because I'm terrified of it. And he would be right to be afraid. And in fact, we do see 
fear and anxiety from Jesus later in the Garden of Gethsemane. We're not there yet. But I don't think it's for fear that he doesn't go into Judea. I think it's because he realizes it's not the right time. It's not time yet to put myself into uh, the custody, if you will, of these religious leaders who are seeking to kill me. So not my time yet. The world cannot hate you. Look, you're just like them. You want the same things as them. You live the same kind of life as them. They don't hate you. There's a reason for them to hate you. But they hate me because I testify about it that its works are evil. The presence of Jesus and the words of Jesus seem to have the effect on people of making them aware of their sins. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. That's the very same reality here. When Jesus brings his holiness and his perfection and his love into a crowd of people or even into just an encounter with one person, there is a humbling and at times a retaliation, kind of an anger that comes in response to that. We saw that with the apostle, uh, with, the, with the disciple Simon Peter a couple of weeks ago when we read from Luke 5, where Jesus goes out on his boat and he says, cast your nets. And he was like, we've been doing this all night and we didn't catch anything, but whatever, we'll do it. And suddenly they, bring, they get so many fish that nets are breaking and boats are sinking. And Simon Peter says, Lord, get away from me, for I'm a sinful man. Like that's his response because the presence of Jesus exposes the darkness in his heart, exposes his sin and his wickedness. Now, thankfully, Simon Peter didn't stay in that place of get away. He responded to Jesus' invitation. Don't be afraid. Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And so he did. Um, but the response, apparently, of many in Jerusalem is going to be the opposite of that. It's going to be they're exposed, their wickedness is exposed by the light of Jesus, and they are going to retaliate against him and, in fact, attempt to have him killed. And eventually, they will. So Jesus says, the world hates me because I call, I, I call them on their sin. I testify about them that their works are evil. So you go ahead and go. I'm not going up to this feast. And I think he really kind of means I'm not going up to the feast in the way that you intend. Because I don't think he's deceiving his brothers here. It reads a little funny. I'm not going to the feast. But after his brothers went, then he went. I don't think he's trying to trick them. I think he's just saying to them, I'm not, this is not my time. I'm not going in the way that you suggest. And maybe not right now. So his brothers go, and then Jesus goes up privately, not in public, but privately. And we find that when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, uh, or whether or not he's arrived yet, he's on the way, in verses 11 and 12, we find that the crowds in Jerusalem are divided about Jesus. There are, there are first of all, there's some people looking for him. I think those are going to be your Pharisees and chief priests, the religious leaders. They're the ones that are determined to kill him. And they know that a Jewish male needs to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem during the Festival of Tabernacles, so they've got their eye out. Let's look for this Jesus so that we can take him down. Then you've got some other people that say, I think he's a good man. I think he's a good teacher. Maybe you've heard people say things like that about Jesus. All right, I believe he was, he was wise. He had a good philosophy about loving people, or he was a wise teacher. Um, again, that's not far enough, because Jesus was much more than just a good man. Jesus is the God-man. Jesus is God in flesh uh, come to bear our sins. But so some people are at least curious and interested and open. I think he's a good man. But then there are others in the crowd that say, no, I think he's leading people astray. So you've got muttering. That's the word that the ESV uses. There's muttering 
going on about Jesus. But check out verse 13. For fear of the Jews, which is the religious leaders who are trying to kill Jesus, for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So there's an attitude in Jerusalem toward Jesus that is so antagonistic and so bent on destroying him that the people are afraid to even be found talking about him for fear that these religious leaders might assume that they're one of his followers or that they might press them for information. Oh, you're speaking about Jesus. Do you know where he is? And so they mutter about him. They're not having open dialogues and debates. They're muttering to one another about Jesus. So there's division in the crowds and fear of the religious leaders and the Jews are seeking to kill him. So Jesus comes into Jerusalem and the rest of the verses that we'll cover today are uh, organized around three sort of questions, either explicitly given or kind of implied. And Jesus addresses these questions and then there's kind of an engagement with the crowd. And so let's read together verses 14 through 24, which is kind of this next chunk of verses where Jesus is going to uh, stand up in the temple and make his presence known. Verse 14, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So in the middle of the week, okay, so he's gone to Jerusalem. The festival's been going on for a few days. Now we have the middle of the week. Jesus goes straight to the temple and starts teaching which is certainly public, but it's not in displays of power like his brothers had suggested to him. So it's distinct from that. Yet Jesus is presenting himself publicly and beginning to teach. Interestingly, John does not tell us the content of his teaching. Just as he started teaching and then people went, wow, this guy is learned. This guy is, uh, has been trained somehow, but he doesn't seem to have been to school. And there we have kind of another form of unbelief, if you will, Jesus is wise, Jesus is eloquent, Jesus is impressive, but the content of what he says is kind of irrelevant to them because they don't say, wow, what must we do to be saved? Or, wow, this man is the Christ and we need to follow him. They say, wow, he's a really good teacher. Where did he get his degree? That's essentially what they're asking. They're, they're impressed by him. And so they ask, Where, how is it that he has learning, but he never went to school. Because in that day, the, the system uh, of, of rabbis and teaching of the law was that one rabbi was trained by another and sort of ordained by him. And so there was a period of time where a 
uh, an apprentice would learn from a rabbi, a recognized teacher of the law, and then at some point when that rabbi recognized this guy's ready to go, he would sort of give him his blessing and say, we have a new rabbi who's able to teach the law. And there was this kind of unbroken succession of rabbi to rabbi to rabbi. And that was well known uh, in this culture. So here comes Jesus speaking with authority, speaking uh, as an expert on the law, but nobody's been aware that he's had any training with the rabbis that they know. So they go, How? this guy hasn't been to school. This guy hasn't been trained by a rabbi. How does he know all of this about the law? How is he so expert in the law? So Jesus gives an answer in verses 16 to 18. Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. So where does he say he got his training? In heaven. You know who my teacher was? God. I got it from God. I went to school in heaven because I came from him. So he went to school in heaven, he was taught by God, and he tells them, this is interesting, if your lives are in tune with God, if you will, then you will know, you will recognize that my teaching is true. He says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, then you will know uh, whether my teaching is from God. And I think that kind of reflects the truth that he had given in chapter 6 that we've been looking at the past couple of weeks, where he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So there's a working of God in the heart of a sinner to make him ready, if you will, to give him spiritual ears to hear what Jesus is saying. And so he's sort of saying, if God is working in someone's heart, he will be softened toward the things of the Lord and ready to hear his teaching. So if, you, if it's in your heart to do God's will, that's what you want, what you want to do is to please God, then, I, then you will have an understanding of what I'm saying. Which is really kind of a thinly veiled indictment, of course, uh, because the crowd listening to him doesn't recognize his teaching as from God uh, because their hearts are not ready. They go, wow, he's impressive. But they don't recognize his teaching as being from God. And so Jesus is saying to them, you're not ready to hear. You don't have spiritual ears to understand this teaching. Then he's going to point out their hypocrisy. Again, people love it when you do that. Verse 19, you don't keep the law, but you want to kill me for breaking it. That's what he says to them, basically. Like, you've got the law of Moses, and you don't, none of you keep it. You've all broken the law of Moses, and yet you're trying to kill me because I broke the law? What's he referring to? John chapter 5, where he healed a man on the Sabbath, which to the, in their minds, and the minds of the, the Jewish leaders, was a violation of Sabbath law. Jesus says, you're trying to kill me for breaking the law. How many of you have kept it? right? You're not doing that great yourselves. The crowd kind of seems to be unaware of that controversy in John 5 because they go, you're crazy. I think that's what you have a demon means. Like, what are you, who, are you nuts? Someone's trying to kill you? Who is trying to kill you? So they have no idea. And so Jesus is going to kind of fill them in. And I think he's also kind of starting to talk to maybe another section of the crowd that is more aware, and they'll make themselves known in just a second. So he says, he tells them about the John 5 controversy, right? I healed a guy uh, on the Sabbath. He says, Moses gave you circumcision, and you circumcise on the Sabbath. What he means by that is that, of course, circumcision was the, the rite of passage for Jewish boys. Uh, and on the eighth day of an infant 
Jew's life, he would be circumcised as a sign of his uh, entrance into the covenant community, if you will. And the law of Moses allowed a concession if the infant's eighth day happened to fall on a Sabbath. And so they would allow him to be circumcised on the Sabbath. And so Jesus says, you'll let a person be circumcised on the Sabbath day, and yet I made a whole man's body well on the Sabbath, and you think of that as breaking the law. And then he tells them, look beneath the surface to the deeper spiritual truths at work before you make a snap judgment. That's essentially what he says in verse 24. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And I think what he's saying is, there's more beneath the surface than just law and breaking the law. There's, there's heart. There's a spirit of the law, and there's a heart behind Jesus' act. And so when he says, I've healed this man on the Sabbath, and you see that as breaking the law, you're failing to see the heart of compassion that led me to heal this man. Not only is it really not that much different than circumcising an infant on the Sabbath day, it is actually an act of mercy and kindness. And so you need to look beyond the surface. And so he calls out their hypocrisy. You're willing to make this concession over here for circumcision, but you're not willing to make a concession for healing somebody, which is not right. And so he tells them, look beyond the surface and judge with right judgment. I don't think this is necessarily exactly what Jesus means here, but I think it's, it's worth pausing just to think about for a minute. We have to be careful with making judgments. We have to be careful with how we look at people and the kind of judgments that we make about them. Just like this crowd had looked at Jesus and seen that he violated the Sabbath code and decided he's a lawbreaker and he has to go, we, it's easy for us to look at the surface and write somebody off or make assumptions about them and their lives without digging deeper to find out what's there beneath the surface. You know, maybe there's somebody with a rocky relationship history or several divorces in their past, and we look at them and think one thing about them. Uh, maybe there's somebody with kids that seem out of control, uh, somebody who can't seem to hold down a job. The easy thing is to look at them and make assumptions about that person's character or abilities, or work ethic, or whatever, and go, this person needs to shape up, right? This person is all out of whack. But as followers of Jesus, and members of the body of Christ, we've got to do better than that. We owe each other better than that. Out of honor for Jesus, we owe each other not just the benefit of the doubt, but the gracious, humble love and acceptance that only come with patient relational investment. We've got to take time with people. We've got to be willing to hear people's stories and look beyond the surface and not make snap judgments about people because we're all broken. We've all got messes and stuff we're not proud of. And we need to be a community that welcomes people with that brokenness, with that baggage, and to say, we're going to look beyond the surface and we're going to be with you in the mess instead of casting uh, quick uh, and uncharitable judgments about people. So I think that's a, a helpful thing for us to think about and be aware of in the church, in the body of Christ as we live our faith together. All right, so now we come to the second question. So the first one was, where did Jesus go to school? And Jesus' answer was, in heaven. 
And I was taught by God because I came here from him. So now they're basically going to ask him, where are you from? Let's read together verses 25 through 31. Some of the people of Jerusalem, therefore, said, isn't this the man whom they are seeking to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, you know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So apparently some in the crowd are in fact aware of the Sabbath controversy, and now they start to speak up. So Jesus has talked about his healing of this man and the controversy that arose, and, and that maybe it rings a bell with them, or maybe it's a new group of people, but they say, wait, isn't, isn't this the guy that they want to kill? I remember hearing about this, this Sabbath controversy. Uh, the last time he was in Jerusalem, this is the one they want to kill. And wait a minute. He's here in the temple, in public, speaking openly. Nobody's arrested him yet. Nobody's come after him. Maybe that means that they actually know he's for real. Maybe they recognize that he's the Messiah, the Christ. And so they can't, they can't stop him or, or they won't stop him. And indeed, that is the dilemma of the chief priests and Pharisees, which, again, John dubs the Jews throughout his gospel. Either Jesus is a bold blasphemer deserving of punishment, or he is, in fact, the prophesied Messiah. Those are the only really two options that they have, and I think they probably fall somewhere in between. I think they, they probably suspect that he might really be the Messiah, but they can't stomach uh, the threat that that poses to their religious and political authority. They like things the way they are because they're in power. And so the fact that he might be the Messiah is enough for them to say, we just need to quiet him down. We need to get him out of the way. And so they set themselves against him, which is obviously not the right response to Jesus. And in fact, is a satanic response, I would say. To recognize that Jesus is or may be the prophesied Messiah that the Jews have been waiting for for hundreds of years and to set themselves as his opponent is truly a Satan-inspired position to take. Others in the crowd are a little more skeptical. So someone says, maybe they really think this is the Messiah. And then somebody else kind of says, well, wait a minute, we, we, he's from Galilee. Like, we know where he's from. And apparently by this time, the... Uh, People's messianic expectations included the notion uh, that his origin would be mysterious, that the Messiah would just kind of appear and nobody would really know where he came from. And uh, I don't think that's uh, from the Old Testament. I think it was kind of a tradition that had arisen. And so they say, wait a minute, we, but we know he's from Galilee and we know his parents, Joseph and Mary. And so I don't think he could be the Messiah because we know where he's from. So Jesus gives them an answer. Okay, if you're curious about where I'm from, you know me and you know where I come from, talking about his earthly home, his earthly family, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true. Who is him who sent Jesus? God the Father, right? So it's kind of veiled. It doesn't come right out and say, 
I'm from heaven. God sent me. But that's what he is saying. Again, to those who have the ears to hear, I'm from heaven. God the Father sent me here. And so he says, I've not come of my own accord. Him who sent me is true. And check this out. You don't know him. You do not know God. More than just stating the insane yet true fact that he is from heaven, he also slams the Jews. I think he's probably openly addressing the chief priests and Pharisees here who he knows have set themselves against him and are doing the work of the devil. And he says, you don't know him. Now, I want you to compare that to what he said to this very same crowd back in chapter 5 in direct response to that Sabbath controversy. He told them in verses 37 and 38 of John 5, the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. The very same accusation against the very same people. You have set yourselves against the anointed servant of God because you don't know him. You don't know God. That's a pretty big, bold challenge to make to the guys who are in charge of the temple. These are the leaders of worship and Jewish religion. And Jesus says to them, you don't know God. Not surprisingly, that makes the Pharisees want to seize him. So in verse 30, they make an attempt. They were seeking to arrest him, but they can't. No one laid a hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. There we go again with that hour thing. Which hour? The hour of his appointed death on the cross. It's not time yet. He's got another six months to go before it's Passover and before it's the appointed time by God for Jesus to give himself up on a cross. And so they attempt to arrest him and they can't do it. Now, I don't know exactly what, how they couldn't. I don't know if they just couldn't get to him through the crowds or if there was some kind of invisible force field around Jesus or something and they couldn't touch him. I don't know how this worked out exactly, but here's the point. Don't underestimate the sovereign control of God over human circumstances. These guys are set against Jesus and they're determined to get him and they're going after him and they can't because God says, not yet. It's not time. If it's not the moment appointed by God, it won't happen, period. His plans and purposes will not be thwarted. So in your life, if you're afraid that you're going to miss his will or make a decision that sends you outside of his plans forever, you can relax. If God doesn't want it to happen, it won't. If he has to shut a door, create a diversion, or just change your mind, he's going to get in the way of what it is that he won't have you do. You're not going to accidentally wander away from his plans. He will have his way. He is sovereign. He has a meticulous providence over the world and even over our uh, choices and the circumstances surrounding our lives. God will have his way. Now, apparently there is genuine faith in some of the crowd because in verse 31 it tells us, yet many of the people believed in him. And they said, when the Christ appears... Will he do more signs than this man has done? And I think that's a rhetorical question. I think they anticipate a negative answer. In other words, could we expect a Messiah to do more than Jesus has done? He's healed people. He's given blind people sight. 
He's doing all, he's fed thousands of people with a Lunchable. Like he's done amazing things, right? He's done amazing things. Surely we couldn't expect the Messiah to do more than he has. In other words, hasn't he demonstrated enough already that he is the Messiah? So there are some in the crowd who see him for who he is. And, you would, and we could say that God has been working in their hearts and drawing them to Jesus, and they have those spiritual ears to hear uh, what Jesus is really saying. So now we get to the final section that we'll cover today, and we'll do this quick, verses 32 through 36. So the Pharisees heard the people muttering. The Pharisees heard the crowd saying this stuff and heard that some people were saying, yeah, I think he might really be the Messiah, And so the faith of the few is not enough to hinder the now determined Pharisees and temple leaders, and things are about to get serious. The Pharisees no longer try to seize him on their own, which failed just a minute ago. Now they're going to send the police after him. Tells us in verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Now these are probably like temple guards who were responsible for keeping order in the temple during uh, worship, and especially during this this season of you know the festival of booze where all these people have come into Jerusalem. It would be a pretty rowdy place. So these temple guards are probably like big, tough dudes, right? Because they got to keep order in this crazy place. So they're sending the big guns, if you will, after Jesus. Go and get him. So Jesus responds to them. There, he sees the officers coming, and he says, uh, he assures them that in a way you're going to get your wish. I won't be here that much longer Don't worry, look at verse 33. I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. What does he mean? He means God. I'm going back to heaven with God. What's Jesus' ultimate destination? It's heaven. It's in the presence of God. But how do they hear it? We're not sure exactly. He says, you will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. So Jesus answers this implied question, where is Jesus going? By saying, I'm going back to heaven to be with my father. And as usual, the audience doesn't quite get it. They interpret him in an earthly sense, and they ask one another in mockery, where is he going to go that we can't find him? And they say, is he going to go uh, to the dispersion among and teach the Greeks, which the the Greeks are probably Gentiles, that is non-Jewish people, who have converted to Judaism. And so they, they would be kind of an extra level of outcast to the Jews because they're unclean because they're Gentiles and they're like kind of trying to encroach on their religious territory, right? No, we are the people of God. You can't be the people of God. So if Jesus is to go to the Greeks, the Gentiles, it probably is, that, is the truth that these religious leaders wouldn't go after him because they don't want to make themselves unclean, right? Oh, you can have your way. If you're going to go hang out with the Gentiles, more power to you. What good are you going to do there? It's probably kind of their attitude. But so they say, where's he going that we can't follow? And they don't get it, which is not that surprising. But here's what I want to close with. Jesus tells them, I'm only going to be here a little longer. Really, truly, about six months, right? I'm only going to be here a little longer, and then I am going back home. I'm going back to my Father in heaven. And we know that Jesus will, in fact, return to his Father in heaven, but we also know that that won't happen until after his crucifixion and resurrection. Even as he assures the crowds in Jerusalem that he is on his way to the one who sent him, he knows that the pathway back to his heavenly home will carry him through hell first. He knows that merely six months from now, he will enter Jerusalem 
on a mission that will lead him to a criminal's cross where he will suffer and die, not for his own sins, but for ours. So I've got to ask you this morning, are you going there with him? When Jesus returns to heaven to be with his Father, are you going with him? Do you have the assurance that when your time comes to breathe your last breath and to leave this earth, that you will be joining Jesus in his heavenly home? I think it's appropriate to hear a word of warning in Jesus' statement in verse 34 where he says, you will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. You can't leave him waiting indefinitely. He's holding out the hope of eternal life. He's inviting you to take hold. But there will come a time when it's too late. There will come a time when you will seek him in vain, he says. If you're waiting for the perfect moment or for every question to be answered or for your life to be in better order first, you need to heed Jesus' warning here. If the Father is drawing you toward Jesus, if the Lord is working in your heart and you sense yourself drawing nearer to faith in Jesus, but you've never taken that step of faith to name him as your Savior, that there is a right time to take that step, and it's now. Don't put it off. Don't wait for another day. Don't wait until things are a little bit easier or you understand a little bit more. Come to him in faith today. Today could be the day that you find that assurance and, and place yourself into Christ by faith, just like riding in a plane and, and taking your statements of, yeah, I think that flying by plane is safe and good, and putting it into action by resting your body in the plane. You could, you could today just simply make the step to name Jesus as Savior if you haven't done that. And we would love to help you do that. So if you feel like that is you, then please don't leave here this morning without a conversation with me or Lindsay or any of our uh, imprint team. We would love to, uh, to have that conversation and to help you figure out what it means to take that step, just to name Christ as Savior and to invite him into your life.